I want to call your attention this afternoon to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We have been making slow progress through this chapter, off and on for several weeks, and we come to it once again today. Let me begin reading at verse 1, and we'll refresh the context in our minds. Romans 13, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For, For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are... God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing, render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. May the Lord bless the reading of Holy Scripture. We might call this section of Romans chapter 13, New Testament civics for Christians. It certainly differs in some ways, in some significant ways, from that of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a theocratic, socio-politico- Religious society, a sacral society. However, in the first century, after the Lord Jesus had come and instituted a new institution for this post-crucifixion economy, we see a different arrangement, and it is addressed here. Christians live, in the first century, let's say, first of all, Christians lived under unfriendly governments. No longer Old Testament Israel theocratic sacral society. And to live as they did in the first century under unfriendly governments First of all, the Jewish, and then more broadly, the Roman, 
This is set forth as the expectation for the New Testament people of God until Jesus comes again. And so a passage like this tells us how to understand and how to approach our duty to civil government in the context in which we find ourselves and the context in which Christians have found themselves ever since Romans 13 was written. And so just to give a, a very brief review here, we have seen the duty set forth at the beginning of verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Well, that's a pretty plain and straightforward uh, obligation, submission to civil government. And then what follows may be outlined as a series of reasons for this submission and uh, explanations and uh, amplifications, we might say, of this duty. And I am following pretty closely the outline that John MacArthur gives in his commentary here. He outlines seven reasons or reinforcements to the duty of verse 1. First is, that civil government exists by divine decree. That's the last part of verse 1. For there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. It's God's institution. Secondly, in verse 2, at the beginning of verse 2, resistance to civil government is rebellion against God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. Thirdly, at the end of verse 2, those who resist civil government will be punished. And of course the punishment may come at the hands of the civil government itself or even worse at the hands of God himself. They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or condemnation, judgment. Now we come to a fourth reason at the beginning of verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. And we might restate that this way. Civil government serves to restrain evil. It it serves to this function and purpose, this design, to restrain evil. And then the fifth reason begins there in the middle of verse 3 and goes through the first part of verse 4, and that amounts to this, uh, which is sort of the counterpart, a little bit of overlap here, Civil government serves to promote good. It serves on the one hand to restrain evil, on the other hand to promote good. Wilt thou then, he says, not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for 
good. So we want to take a brief look at both of these points here today. As I say, it's sort of two sides of the same coin, that civil government is designed to restrain evil and promote good. So at the beginning of verse 3, we read, Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. The rulers here are those in civil government. This is obviously a synonym for what he called in verse 1, the higher powers and the powers that be. This is simply another name for them. This word is sometimes translated prince in the New Testament. It speaks, obviously, of the civil authority. And he says, they are not a terror. And there's an interesting uh, language matter here also, and that is that the word terror here is the noun form of the word afraid in the next part of the verse. We lose that connection of, of the same word or the same root word here in, in an English translation. But tier, uh, uh, rulers are not a fear to good works but to the evil. Wilt thou then not fear the power? Do that which is good and so on. What the apostle is telling us here in so many words is that civil government is not an enemy to good works but to evil works. It is, rather, a friend to good works, and that's especially in the part that we'll come to in just a moment. But this is why we have the responsibility to submit unto their God-ordained authority. reminds us in a way of a verse from the Old Testament from the book of Proverbs, the fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. You know, you, you don't go and pick a fight with, uh, with a raging lion, do you? And you don't go and pick a fight with the civil authorities either. I would point out that the emphasis here is upon works. We read in, in verse 3 here of good works in contrast to evil works. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. The realm of civil government has to do with deeds, actions, works. That's as far as the policing authority of civil government can go. Rulers in this world have no jurisdiction over the thoughts, the motives, the consciences of its citizens. That realm, the realm of the conscience, is God's realm alone. And liberty of conscience is a precious and sacred and biblical principle. And I hope at some point before we 
finish these studies in Romans 13 to address that whole subject of liberty of conscience a bit further. But the point here today is this. The design of civil government is to put fear into those who would do wrong. And that fear then becomes a, a deterrent to keep people from doing what is wrong. It's just that simple. Well, so far so good, but perhaps your, your mind is already racing to a thought like this. It doesn't seem to be reality. It doesn't seem to be where we live. Are rulers a terror to evil works and not good works? Had not Paul already suffered at the hands of Jewish rulers for his good works? And would he not soon suffer at the hands of Roman rulers for his good works? Was Paul not aware that the Lord Jesus himself had suffered for doing good at the hands of both Jewish and Roman rulers? Were not these rulers a terror to good works? You would think if anyone had reason to say something different than what is said here, it would be Paul because of all of the beatings and imprisonments and so on that he had suffered just for preaching the gospel, just for doing good. Nevertheless, under inspiration, he says these things, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Well, this is a challenging question, and I'm going to give a couple of answers here from some teachers who sit on my bookshelves, and I'm going to quote from some some of those sources more heavily this afternoon than normal because this is a challenging subject that I need lots of help on. Charles Hodge gives this insight. Paul is speaking of the legitimate design of government, not the abuse of power by wicked men. End quote. He is talking about how it ought to operate, Hodge says. This is what it, this is its design. But then perhaps even more helpful is this insight from Robert Haldane. Let me just say this. I especially appreciate what Mr. Haldane has to say because he was a Baptist and Baptists always have more of a New Testament understanding of these things than do non-Baptists. Haldane says, good works and bad works are not spoken of, are not here spoken of, 
with reference to Christianity. In other words, the way that we talk about good works and bad works in a Christian context is is not exactly what Paul is addressing here. He goes on to say, the conduct of Christians with respect to obedience to Christ as it is offensive to civil rulers and has often been punished by them is not here in the apostles' view. End quote. In other words, Paul is addressing what we might think of as the common good generally, the the good that unbelievers would naturally acknowledge by common grace, or the evil that unbelievers would also acknowledge as evil. It is not Christian good works in particular, or the bad treatment of Christians by civil government that Paul is dealing with here, which is a sad, or has been a sad reality, the evil treatment uh, ever since Paul himself in some parts of this world. The freedom that we enjoy and have enjoyed here in our country is a rare, precious thing. Peter says something that I think clarifies this. In fact, I'll ask you to turn there with me. First Peter chapter 3, he seems to make the distinction here uh, maybe a bit more clearly than Paul does in Romans 13. First Peter 3, and uh, beginning at verse 13. Who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? He's saying there in in so many words what Paul says here in Romans 13. If you do what is right, in other words, if you are a law-abiding citizen, then you don't have anything to fear. You don't have anything to worry about. No one's going to harm you. But there is another level. And that comes in in verse 14. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake. In verse 13, he's dealing with just what what is the general good of of, of a, a population of people that is commonly recognized. In verse 14, he's dealing specifically with Christian persecution. But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, and so on. Let me give one further quotation from William S. Plummer. He says, quote, Paul lived and wrote and suffered under Nero. And yet by precept and example, he taught submission to our civil rulers. It is a great privilege to live under a free government. And obedience to its good laws should be rendered with the most 
cheerful alacrity or, or joy, readiness. But even under a despotic government, there ought to be no factious opposition and no hesitancy to obey right laws. And of course, uh, an interesting word and an important word there is the word right, to obey right laws. He goes on to say, magistrates sometimes err through mistake, sometimes through prejudice, sometimes through bad passions, and sometimes through bad counsel. But wise men will bear with these errors as long as they can, end quote. He kind of leaves us hanging there, doesn't he? As long as they can. How much abuse and uh, injustice can we take? Well, that's where his quotation ends. Maybe we'll tackle that a little bit more in another message of what happens then when we have borne with these uh, errors as long as we can. Well, let's go on and look at the next argument, or the other side of the argument, really. Civil government serves to promote good. We pick up here in the middle of verse 3, Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. If you want, Paul says, to avoid the terror of the strong arm of civil government, then do what is good. And you have nothing to fear. In fact, you will be approved. You will be praised, commended. J.B. Phillips sort of explains it this way. The honest citizen has no need to fear the keepers of law and order, but the dishonest man will always be afraid of them. If you want to avoid this anxiety, just lead a law-abiding life, and all that can come your way is a word of approval. And so this is the general rule. This is certainly the design of civil government, and it is the general rule of how it functions. For citizens who do good and who contribute to the common good of society and who at least in some measure are are neighborly, There's no punishment to be afraid of by civil government. But rather, that good behavior will be rewarded or at least um, honored and appreciated in some way. That was true. It, It had to be true. In Rome and in every earthly government since then, regardless of how flawed it might be. 
Remember that Paul appealed to Caesar for justice. He appealed to his justice system in Acts chapter 25. Why did he do that? Because he knew that he had, to say it in human terms, he had a better chance at getting a fair trial from Nero than from the Jewish authorities. They had already made their plans for him known. They didn't care about evidence. They wanted him dead. And Paul takes the, the risk, we might say, of appealing to, a, to the Roman court system in hopes of a more fair hearing. And as best as we can determine the timeline of things, uh, that Nero evidently was already in power, had been in power just a few years when the book of Romans was written. Though uh, you may say, well, in the book of Acts, that Caesar is called Augustus. But as I understand the chronology of the Caesars, uh, Augustus was the first emperor and that the, the title Augustus came to be used similar to the very title Caesar uh, as a generic term or a, a title of office for those who followed thereafter. Generally speaking, as a general rule, Civil government serves to promote good. There is, of course, no perfect civil government. And the reason why is all too obvious to us. It's because there are fallen, depraved sinners holding offices of civil government. And so government itself is going to be flawed because of the flaws of the people running it as flawed as the Roman government was it did generally speaking serve as a restraint to evil works and a, a promoting agent to good works And that leads then to this observation that several make, uh, several writers make, and it amounts to this. Any government is preferable to none whatsoever. And no sooner does one government fall than another one comes to fill the void and take its place because total anarchy is, is the worst imaginable option. William Plummer again says this, It is probable that the very worst regular government on earth is better than a state of anarchy. And then he quotes an earlier writer named Evans who puts it this way, Better bad government than none at all. And, and several writers again emphasize this point that Christians would certainly suffer more under anarchy 
than anything else. We would probably fare worse than most anyone under such a, a, a chaotic arrangement. The last thing that Paul says here at, at, under this point, as we've outlined it here, is at the beginning of verse 4. It's a very interesting statement. For he that is the ruler, uh, the, the civil government power office holder, he is the minister of God to thee for good. And as you may already know, the word minister there is the same word that we get deacon. Of course, in a formal office, official capacity, the office of deacon in the New Testament church is the office of a servant. Here the term, of course, is used in an informal sense, but this was a term used to speak of a a, a, a servant who was in a position of honor. And this is what those who hold office in civil government are said to be. The minister, the servant, the deacon of God for our good. He is promoting your best interest and the best interest of society at large by promoting good behavior and punishing bad behavior. And and we'll see more about the punishing of bad behavior next time. (coughs) Or we can say it this way. Civil rulers are doing the Lord's work, whether they realize it or not. They are functioning in a capacity that God has ordained and that must be in in, in place and, and in order. If there's to be any structure and order to society at all. Sad to say, many times, perhaps most of the time, and perhaps the vast majority of the time, the, the civil rulers have no idea that they are doing the Lord's work. Many seem to be like the unjust judge in Luke 18 who said, I fear neither God nor regard man. And yet, he's doing the Lord's work nonetheless. He was the minister of God for good for a good purpose, for a good design. Now, as we've pointed out before, the command of verse 1 is to believers. It's to the saints at Rome. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. And there's no imperative or command given here in this passage for the civil rulers. There is something of a job description, but it doesn't come in the form of a command. this, This passage is not addressed directly to them. However, wise rulers would do well to consider this passage 
and consider what God says they ought to be doing. Mr. Plummer writes, The passage under consideration suggests the duties both of those who govern and of those who are governed. End quote. And I think suggests, uh, he uses that weak term because there is no imperative for the civil authorities in this passage. But certainly the citizens in general and the civil rulers over them both have duties before God. He is the minister of God. Now, I have a lengthy quotation here from Robert Haldane, and I think it speaks for itself. I'll read it slowly and carefully. Please listen. Some have inferred from this passage that the apostles' injunctions refer solely to such governors as are truly good and altogether what they ought to be. In other words, he says, some have approached this passage saying, the only time that we are under obligation to submit to civil authorities is if they are good and if they are functioning properly and in a godly way. Mr. Haldane says, nothing can be further from the truth. From this it would follow that the apostle, while professing to furnish an explicit rule of conduct in this matter for those whom he addressed, in reality gave them none and that he has here laid down no clear and precise direction which could apply to Christians from that time to the present. Let me just again explain. He's saying there's never been a time when civil rulers, magistrates, powers, governors, kings, whatever you want to call them, whatever title they have, have been all that they ought to be and have been operating by biblical principles. And if that, if, if that has to be in place before the obligation of submission to them is in order, then, then this passage has never applied to any generation of Christians. He goes on to say, Human governments, like everything administered by men, must always be imperfect. And as it is easy to form exaggerated ideas on this subject, no administration of any form that has ever existed would appear to come up to the imaginary standard. It would, besides, be impossible for the great body of Christians to arrive at a satisfactory conclusion as to their duty in this respect. This is one of those traditions by which the scriptures are as completely made void as by the Pharisees of old or by modern neologians. The rule which is here, or which is here given, is clear to all. 
It was dictated to Paul by God under one of the worst governments that ever existed and under which the blood of the apostle himself was shed as if he had been a malefactor or an evildoer, end quote. Now, let me address an objection that may be in your mind, as it is in mine. And I've said earlier that we'll address more of this, hopefully in some concluding messages to this passage, but I want to at least bring it in at this point here today. What if... Civil rulers do, in fact, cease to promote the common good and do, in fact, become a terror to good works and a friend to evil doing. And what if civil rulers turn against not only Christians as Christians, but against the population at large. Actually tearing down and destroying social order. And conducting a demolition operation from coast to coast. Disrupting the food supply, for example, and transportation and health care and on and on. And what if they effectively diminish the wealth of their citizens by any number of means and machinations? What if they destroy the middle class? What if they are actually out to kill the citizens generally in large numbers in order to achieve population reduction and serve the purposes of a totalitarian, tyrannical, globalist agenda and effectively construct a new Tower of Babel and establish a one-world tyrannical order. That seems to be what we're facing today. And I, I, I don't mean to sensationalize things and, and cry wolf. But the, the consistent policies that our current Caesar, and it's not just partisan. You know, both parties have had a huge hand in this over many years now. The only conclusion that we can draw from all of the evidence and from all of the policies across the board, the whole spectrum of what civil government takes upon itself, 
leads us to only one conclusion. Your government wants to kill you. If you haven't figured that out, I'm sorry to be the one to inform you today. But that appears to be where we are. If it is not so, then let them immediately begin to reverse most every policy that has been put into place almost in our lifetime. And, of course, the, the globalist leaders are not trying to hide this. They've let it be known. They're proud of it. And, you know, some have published books on it and made speeches on it where we need to get rid of, of you know, about nine-tenths of the world's population. And it seems that many in our government are on board with that. And if I'm wrong, I'll be happy to be wrong. But that, beloved, is the only conclusion that I, I think anyone who is facing the facts and, and observing what's going on can, can draw. We're in a dilemma that, from what I know of, of human history, it seems to be unparalleled. I mean, even as bad as Rome was in its government, Paul could say, generally speaking, the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. We are getting to the point where I don't think we can say that. And so this is what we're faced with. And this is why Romans 13 is so especially challenging to us to understand and apply today. Well, again, let me lean upon Charles Hodge here for a little wisdom. He says, Obligation, he means the obligation of verse 1 to submit to higher powers. Obligation ceases when this design is systematically, constantly, and notoriously disregarded. But then he says, cases in which revolutions are justifiable must be exceedingly rare. And in another place, he goes on to say this. When rulers become a terror to the good and a praise to them that do evil. Look at all the promoting of you know, the so-called pride month and everything that just ended. When rulers become a terror to the good and a praise to them that do evil. Mr. Hodge says, they may still be tolerated and obeyed. Not, however, of right. It's like they've forfeited their rights at this point to our subjection. But because the remedy may be worse than the disease. 
And by that he means living through a, a, a bloody revolution and a stage of anarchy and perhaps a, uh, you know, an all-powerful dictator that comes in to fill the void and so on. That may be worse than what we started with. And I think Mr. Hodge has some wisdom there. Let me emphasize this as we draw to a close here today. Our present duty certainly includes prayer. Prayer for our rulers. This same Paul who wrote Romans 13 by inspiration wrote these words a little later to Timothy. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. This is what I would urge all of us to be doing in these days. Let us pray. Let us keep praying. Let us pray more and more for our rulers and for God to to keep them from doing things worse and that God would replace those that ought to be replaced. And let us pray not only for our rulers, let us pray for ourselves. We are in a dilemma. And we need wisdom that only God can give us. And we can be sure that he will give it to us when we ask. He's promised us that in the book of James, hasn't he? God will guide us. He is our shepherd. We are his sheep. And the shepherd will guide his sheep as time unfolds.